Makers and Mystics Podcast presents Naming the Animals, an invitation to creativity by Stephen Roach with Ned Bustard. This companion podcast follows a chapter-by-chapter discussion of the book Naming the Animals, published by Square Halo Books. To get your copy of the book, visit squarehalobooks.com or see the show notes of this episode. This is Episode 4, Action. Diana, thank you so much for joining us today on the Naming the Animals podcast. It is such an honor to be here. I'm excited about our conversation today. Absolutely. You know, the arts organization that I began is called The Breath and the Clay. And then in this chapter so much and in the book, we talk a lot about the breath of God feeling the clay man, Adam. And so I'm really excited to get your perspective on the creative process and the spiritual process that goes along with that. Fantastic. I think that there's so much for artists in the image of God, right, as a potter working with clay, but also in other kinds of art forms. And that creative endeavor, that creative process by our creator God is such a wonderful thing to meditate on, isn't it? Mm-hmm, it really is. Well, I want to read the first paragraph of this chapter as a launch pad into the conversation. And the chapter begins with a quote from Genesis 2, 19 and 20. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Adam's naming of the animals gives us the Bible's first picture of humanity's creative collaboration with God. In appointing Adam to name the animals, God begins to nurture this seed of his divine creativity in the clay man. The creator had just stretched out the cosmos with his word and formed living creatures from the dust. He was certainly capable of naming his own animals. But something in the heart of God desired human involvement. In fact, he had designed humanity specifically for creative collaboration with him. Adam's naming of the animals shows us God's continued development of humanity into the co-creative beings he intends us to be. The significance of this cannot be overstated. In naming the animals, humanity, represented by Adam, entered into God's creative process and was given opportunity to express the latent creative abilities breathed into us. Diana, what do you think about that? I'm struck by a number of things in that. I love to go back to that idea of God forming life out of the dust, right? Out of the out of the clay as it were. And uh, if you look back in the Hebrew word for to form or to shape, that's the word yatsar, right? Which is the same word, exact same word uh, that potters use or that pottery descriptions are used to squeeze or to pull into shape the turning of that clay on the wheel. And one of the reasons as as a potter myself that I get so excited about that particular image is I see God 
revealing God's self as a potter working with clay throughout the entire Bible. We see it in Genesis, we see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, in Romans, in Corinthians, in several of the epistles. Uh, This is one of the powerful ways that God tells us what he is like, right? This importance of metaphor or picture or image for us to grasp something of the nature of God. And for some reason, God really likes and reuses this image of how potters and uh, work with clay. And I love that. And, and one of the aspects of that, really, really simply, why would God use that more often than the image of, say, painting, right? And I think part of that for us as artists is if we can picture the difference between how a painter addresses a canvas and the way that a potter works on a potter's wheel with clay. Think about their posture. When I as a potter work with clay, I sit down, I settle in, I lean deeply into that, and I get really, really intimately connected to the clay as I'm working. So I think that Yatsar, that creative process of God bringing life forth from the earth, is an incredibly intimate image uh, of God really settling down. In Genesis, it talks about the Holy Spirit brooding over creation, right? And so you think about how a hen broods over a nest, and then uh, the image very much the same as the potter sort of um, bending over, bending low over the clay, which I think begins to suggest for us incarnation itself, Jesus who becomes human and dwells right in the midst of us. You know, one of the things that really stood out to me as I was writing the book is the place of collaboration between God and humanity. And we see that in this passage where it says, whatever the man named them, that was its name. And I always go back to that. We talked about that in our first episode with Drew Johnson, but I haven't gotten over that yet. Whatever Adam called it, that was his name. It was like God said yes to that. And in this chapter, the action chapter we're talking from today, there's also the example when God calls upon Moses to sculpt the snake. And it says that he he gave Moses the instructions to sculpt the snake. But what's interesting is that the the scripture doesn't say that God commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent. It just said that he called Moses to make a serpent. And then when it talks about Moses making the serpent, that's when we learned that it was bronze. And so for me, at least, I've always seen that as, that's pretty cool. I think maybe Moses chose that. There was a, there was a choosing in collaboration with God. And, and I'd, I'd love to know what that's like for you as a potter, uh, your relationship to the material itself that you use, the different types of clay, and, and just what is that process like? How do you collaborate with your material the way God collaborates with us, maybe? <laughs> I think there's a vivid picture there. Um, your listeners may not be aware that there are many different kinds of clay that a potter can use. So there's porcelain, which is very sensitive and very soft and delicate. There's earthenware, which is much more robust. And so as I'm working with the clay, 
I have to really think about what are the inherent qualities of this clay? And you may not know, but we actually call it a clay body, right? These are called different clay bodies. So as I'm nice. working with the clay body, I have to ask myself, how much stress can this endure? How many chances do I have to shape it or to pull it? How high can it go before it collapses? Wow. When I'm thinking about the firing process, I have to think about how much heat does it need to bring <laughs> out its best qualities and how much is too little and how much is too much. And so I'm constantly attentive to the unique qualities of each different kind of clay. And not only that, for clay, it might be uh, affected by weather or circumstance. So if it's very humid, it's going to take longer for the clay to dry. It's going to respond in different ways to the application of water to the surface of the clay. So if I am a wise artist, I'm constantly sensitive not only to the clay body, but also to the particular circumstances that are going to involve the shaping of that particular vessel. And I think about that. I love uh, in your book, your discussion of how God gives such freedom to us, to Moses, uh, to Adam, in terms of naming and cooperating and collaborating together. Uh, there's a listening implied that God is attentive to us, to who we are and what we need in all of those circumstances. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Well, I think an important thing too is that this idea doesn't end with Genesis. That I think that we go to Genesis 1 for so many foundational prescriptive concepts, as we should, but this idea of collaboration doesn't stop there. That, that you know, in, in Exodus where God is saying, okay, it's time to make the tabernacle and all the things, he tells Moses, this is all the stuff I want to make. There's a guy who can do this. And we really don't see much more beyond that. And you, you're, you're really left with the conclusion that God said, make these things. And in the same way, God said, whatever the animal's name is going to be named. God said, okay, I want you, this, this is, this is the kind of thing I want made, this tabernacle thing. And Beziel and his crew went and had to make it and, and brought all of their experiences as artisans from 400 years uh, working in Egypt, and they brought that into the creative process. And, and there was that collaboration even at the creating of God's place of worship. There are a number of aspects of that that are really stunning for me as an artist. And one of them is we assume then that the many, many hours that these artisans spent training and perfecting their craft actually matter. Right. Right. How many times those of us who are more artistic here will, you know, that's, it, it's not practical or, you know, why are you wasting your time in your little arty, arty thing, you know, <laughs> that you do? Um, maybe I'm the only one who's heard that kind of thing. Oh, yes, you're it, the it, only it one. I'm sure no one else has ever heard that. <laughs> <laughs> it does get discouraging, but to think about how these artists were trained, practiced, and prepared so that when God's command came, they were able to execute that order. And I think that that idea of command, Ned, is really, really important for us to think about. God doesn't like shrug and say, okay, if you want to make art, go ahead. He commands art making right. at a number of really critical places in the history of his dealing with, with his people. And I think that that can be really reassuring for any of us who faced kind of discouragement. Is it okay that I'm playing with my paint? Is it okay that I'm working uh, with this clay? Uh, God not only allows it, 
not only endorses it, but at various points in time commands artistic expression of God's very nature. And that's pretty exciting. Um, uh, Stephen, you talk so much about how that is part of the reflection of God's nature in our own hearts, in our own being, when we participate in these creative acts. Well, that leads me to a question that I'd love to ask you, and that is, you have a book, you're an author as well, and you have a book, Clay in the Potter's Hand. And so much of what you talk about in the book is how pottery making goes well beyond the shaping process of it. You know, most of the time when we think about pottery making, we think about the shaping of it we sh uh, on the wheel, but there's so much more that goes into that. And throughout the book, I make these comparisons of God's creative process and our creative process. What can we learn about the nature of God through our art making? And what can we learn about ourselves through the process of art making? So I'd love to hear from you sharing a bit about that experience for you as a potter. Yeah, I'd love to. I think that that's one of the important contributions of your book to our conversation as artists, that art making awakens in us a sense of sensitivity and observation about the nature of God, even as we are making art. Um, and and you're, you're right, you're exactly right. When we think about working with clay, we focus so much on the shaping process, but there are other steps in the pottery process that I think give us an expanded vision of who God is. For example, before the potter can start working on the clay, the potter has to uh, attach the clay firmly to the wheel. It has to be really strongly committed to the wheel head. And I think about commitment in our own lives, you know, as long as we're, yeah, sort of, or oh, maybe, or we're kind of wobbling, not quite, or maybe, <laughs> kind of, sort of, it's a lot harder for God to work on us, right? Yes, yes. But pottery making, in its essence, says you've got to hold still. You have to be, you have, you have to wait, you have to be all in, in order for God, the potter, to be really at work in your lives. If not, the minute that the potter puts a little pressure on the clay. If it's not firmly attached, it basically flies across the room and it, it has to be rescued, redeemed. I've done that a couple of times. Have you done that? <laughs> <laughs> Every beginning potter does, right? And even experienced ones when we get a little bit impatient. I love the idea uh, after that of, uh, after the clay is attached, it has to be centered. And if you've had the pleasure of ever watching a potter work, you see this patient step of centering. And from the outside, not a whole lot is happening, but as the wheel spins and the hands of the, of the potter are putting pressure on that clay, they have to make sure that every aspect of the clay is lined up with the heart of the wheel. Anything that's off is going to throw the whole process off. It's impossible to throw a pot unless the whole thing becomes carefully centered. In my book, I talk about that as shalom, the center of the peace of God. Every aspect of our lives lined up with the great shalom of God. Let me let me just mention one other. Uh, there are 15 in the, in the book that I talk about, but one other step in the pottery making process, probably my favorite chapter because it's a reminder that I need again and again. And that's that 
once the clay has been sought and cleaned, attached to the wheel head, perfectly centered, you think that's just beautiful. That's just great. But there's a big problem at that point. That lump of clay is useless because it's full of itself. <laughs> there's no opening. There's And in order to make a vessel that's useful to put and make a coffee cup or to put flowers in the vase or to make a bowl for your cereal, in order to make room for that to be purposeful, the potter has to press into the center of the clay and open empty space. And I think, I don't know about your life, but uh, my life gets really, really crowded. And I think about how hard it is for me to create empty space, quiet time, unstructured time, uh, to be with God, to dwell with God, to open up to maybe the new things that God is doing. My usefulness, <laughs> I believe, mm. my usefulness as a believer depends on my capacity to open some room in my life that's not busy and crowded and noisy to listen to that still small voice of God and to be open to the new thing that God wants to do. I think that's interesting. You talk about, uh, you, you mentioned it being empty space, but I think about the Holy Spirit filling us. Yeah, or, you know, like Christ yeah. says, you know, when the, the the person, he casts out the demons, you need to fill that space or the demons are going to come back. And I think that what you're doing is is you're creating this space that is filled, yes. uh, that filled with with God's presence. Right, absolutely, and and with the breath of God breathing right, right, right. in us, breathing in and working through us. Well, I think that that it just we have the idea that there are places that that God is not, and that that He is omnipresent and He is filling up all of creation. And are we willing to? be vessels for that? Or are we going to be closed off? I, I love that analogy. I think that's great. You know, it's something that this makes me think about. And we began the conversation talking about God's invitation to us to participate in his creative process. But then you started talking about as well, how important it is to be committed and to be centered and all these different aspects of the process. And it made me think, that what enables us to be entrusted, to add our contribution to God's creativity, for us to be able to name those animals, so to speak, is equal to the measure of surrender we have in our hearts to His intention and His design, which comes from our quiet devotion to the art of God. It comes from that space of, uh, you know, I think of what Jesus himself said is, uh, you know, whatever you ask will be done for you at, you know, and, and that was in reference to when we abide in him. And so there's as much of the Christian faith, there are these paradoxes where I love God coming to us and saying, whatever you name them, that's their name. But to be able to truly add worth to God's creative designs is born out of a place of being centered, being committed, and uh, allowing Him to shape us on that wheel. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and part of our life as artists, as we participate in the creative nature of God, is an increasing um, cultivated cultivation of expectation, don't you think? Because when I sit down mm -hmm. at the potter's wheel, 
I may have some ideas about what I'm going to shape or make that day, but as I collaborate with the clay and with the context that I might be in, as I see how the clay is responding, that interactive nature, uh, I may end up in a different place than when I started. I, I imagine you as an author have had that experience too. You sit down to write and you think you're going to write this way and all of a sudden there's that little <laughs> tug and it goes a different way. Or perhaps as a musician writing a song, you think this is going to be the bridge, but it turns out to not be the bridge. It's actually part of the first verse. And as we learn to do that, I think that's a wonderful spiritual formation discipline, right? So as we engage with our art, why would God enjoy the fact that we function as artists? We think part of that is because it teaches us this sensitive soul, this listening and cooperation, uh, this expectation for the unknown, even though we may not know the exact direction. It gives us that kind of openness, I think, uh, to bring into being something that doesn't exist yet. And I think the excitement of that is something all artists can relate to. Well, I think that that ties in perfectly. We were talking to in an earlier episode with Joy Ike about inspiration, and it's it's precisely that it's that that waitingness, that being involved in in the creative process, but waiting to to see see how it's going to be filled and how it's going to be directed or redirected by God's spirit. Yeah, I love how often I'm surprised as an artist, whether that's when I'm painting or working with clay or even the art of gardening, right? Um, gardening is another wonderful example of cooperating with God mm -hmm. because we can't make things grow. <laughs> At least I can't make things grow. But you just you just think about how often we do have the opportunity to experience wonder and surprise uh, in that process of making things. Well, one aspect of this chapter that Ned and I were talking about that we'd love to hear from you on is this tension between solitude and community. And so much of the artist's work requires solitude. It's done uh, in times of being alone, but yet there's a communal quality to that, that, you know, no, uh, a song sung to an empty theater, I think is one of the metaphors we used in the book. But I'd be curious to know for you, how are some ways that you have seen creatives live out their calling in community, or how have you seen that relationship between solitude and community in your process? I think it's fair to admit that there are times of solitude, especially as we're mastering our craft. When I, I'm uh, experimenting a lot these days with watercolor, uh, and what I find is in order for me to even begin to begin a painting, I have to spend an hour or two simply uh, working with my brush, working with my paints, working with the marks, right? Kind of building my vocabulary as a painter before I can then translate to the actual making of a piece that might be complete. Uh, and though that is a, a kind of focus. I think that's why some people are critical of the arts because it takes us a long time to master our craft. It takes us a lot of work to stay up to date in our craft, right? Uh, and, to not, and to not get rusty in the vocabulary of whatever art form that we make. But that time is, is really important. But then I think about the fact that all art is a kind of speaking forth. It's a kind of language. When I make a pot or make a painting or write a book, 
I think that those art forms are inherently transactional. And I think that that's a really helpful thing to keep in mind. They're inherently transactional. And what I mean by that is they are a form of communication. And when you have communication, you have a speaker, but you also have someone for whom that message is intended, right? So you talk about a musician in an empty theater or, God forbid, a podcast that no one listens to. Right? <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> um, so, but that is not the intent. The intent is that this will be received, right, at the other end, and that we're making it for some purpose. I would argue that even when I'm making something for myself or for the pleasure of making art in and of itself, it is part of me speaking forth to another part of me that needs to discover or learn or perhaps heal or grow in understanding or in cooperation with God. So I believe all art is inherently collaborative because we're collaborating with God and we're making art, which is by its nature, a crying out in whatever language we're using to others, to invite them to come and see, come and hear, come and know. I have some little spark of an insight into some marvelous aspect of God's beauty or goodness or truth. And I want others, right? So I think that, that the sense of that transactional nature or that audience is really, really important. I think that's really crucial. I, I think back over, my mother gave me my first drawing book. I think I was in sixth grade. And because I had been drawing a long time, but she said, okay, here's, here's a book you can keep, keep your drawings. And for a long time, I thought that book was for me. And then I realized that it, it wasn't because I would have this experience. People would say, oh, can I see what you're drawing? And it never had been my intent that to share it with people. But it was then I realized that I have an audience even if I don't want one. And that you have to factor that <laughs> in, that, that this is a, it isn't, as much as it's a solitary activity of drawing or painting or, or whatever we're doing, it's not in the end something that you're doing by yourself. And that, that you have to, you have to keep that in mind. I think in one way, am I going to love my neighbor? You know, that, that this is, I could hurt people with what I'm doing. And, you know, that that affects what I'm, I'm making. But also that, uh, that they, are, they are part of my process and that I'm going to, that this, even, even, if it's, even if they only look at two pages in my drawing book, they have engaged with my artwork and I can't, I don't have the luxury at that point to say this is just for me. And I think that that uh, a lot of times uh, you see artists who who are I I don't know narcissistic egotistical I don't know that, that that they're like this is just for me I'm like no it's never just for you no artwork is just for you you are in community whether you want it or not mm, I love that example I think that's really powerful and that suggests to me there may be even a cosmic dimension of that. Um, that sometimes what we're creating is for uh, an older version of ourselves mm -hmm. or a different aspect or season of our lives. And uh, Ned, perhaps you've had the experience of going back to something that you drew or made in an earlier season, and God used that to minister to your heart. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Very surprising ways, yeah. Very surprising ways, and I love that. But uh, Stephen, back to your question about the solitary artist. You know, I, I've spent most of my life writing about the friendship between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and their creative process. 
and trying to argue through their wonderful example that we need each other in the creative yes. process. Uh, as writers, we may sit alone at the computer, but then we start to get restless and we want someone to read what we've written or we want someone to talk talk with about what we're going through. I'll be uh, meeting with a friend tomorrow. We meet at the park uh, about a mile from here and we uh, talk about what we're working on and we problem solve together. Um, I, I'll read him some excerpts and he'll read me some excerpts and we'll both go away not only encouraged and not only corrected in some way, but I, I think um, reanimated in terms mm -hmm. of the work that we do. And so I think it's vitally important for all artists to find a number of ways that they're connecting with others who can encourage who can challenge, who can ask questions, uh, who can resonate with the vision that they have. They're all different kinds of ways that artists can work together. And I really do think it's hard for anybody to maintain their faith in their own creative process over the long haul if they don't have others surrounding them that are helping uh, iron sharpening iron, but also just that encouragement that we need to kind of keep at it through those dry spells. Diane, I think what you said is really important about the, this aspect of community. I know that your Bandersnatch book actually inspired my wife Leslie and I to do a whole conference and just to bring people together for that collaboration that happens when you're in community. And I think, uh, you know, as we're we're speaking at least with this podcast initially to the breath in the clay community, but I know that there's other communities that I'm involved with, like the rabbit room community and uh, Christians in the visual arts. There's all these different pockets uh, around the country and their gifts. And, but I, I would encourage our listeners to think about plugging in to those types of communities. And for me, I, I have friends in South Carolina and Florida and Tennessee that I'm, I'll, I'll text pictures to that I'm working on. And, and, and there's, there's that need, but I think it's also important that we seek out people who are a mile away that you can walk to, like you were saying, because I think that, that we, we need that intimacy, that the incarnation, the, the tactileness of being human together. And, as much as I, I mean, the, the guy who taught me how to do printmaking lives in Florida and we actually collaborate, we send things through the mail, but there's something different when I go down and I'm in the studio with him pulling prints versus when I'm just communicating to him through my phone or whatever. And so I, I would just encourage our listeners to, to look for both of those types of communities. You can't just have one. And I think that we, if we only pick one, we end up either being impressed, you know, maybe the people who are in your community that are physically with you don't understand you at all. And that, that can be really life-sucking. Or you have just this, this online community that only know as much as you're willing to reveal. And so we, we have to have that balance of both. And uh, I think I'll step off my soapbox now and you can go on with the podcast, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really good. I'd love to end by saying this. What I've learned from talking with you, Diana, what is what strikes me is that all art really is collaboration mm -hmm. on some form or on some level or another. Even though it may be done in solitude, 
all art is collaboration. It's collaboration with God for the believer that, that surrenders in that space. It's collaboration with the material that we use. And then it's also collaboration with the audience that's, that's going to behold this. And so I think that's a beautiful picture because even going back to uh, a theological framework, that's what we see in the Trinity. Is, is God himself is a triune being. God himself is a being in community. And so it just makes me think of um, your work as a potter. I think the, the last paragraph of the action chapter, it says, the creative process changes us like the spinning pottery on God's wheel. Each turning year, each revolution of heart forms our lives more and more into the image he had in mind when he first imagined our existence. And it goes on from there, but I just think that the collaborations, the friendships, the materials, the, the prayerfulness, all of this goes into not only shaping our art, but shaping our own lives as art. And so I just wanted to thank you for being a part of this podcast with us and, uh, turning the lights on for me in that in that regard. That's awesome. Thank you so much. It's really um, wonderful what you're doing through these podcasts in terms of the collaboration of these ideas. So well done. Well done. Thank you for listening to Naming the Animals podcast. This episode was produced by Stephen Roach with music provided by Firefighter. If you would like to support the production of this and other art and faith-related podcasts, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at makersandmystics and leave a kind review on iTunes.